Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hi, hi, hi. This time we're reading Narrative as Virtual Reality by Marie Laura Ryan. Did we ever confirm on how you say Marie Laura Ryan's name? Uh, I I believe you, you sent me a a talk that she was giving, and she was introduced as I believe Marie Laura Ryan. That's what I thought too. But that person also has like a French accent. <laughs> well, I assume that would be even more correct, considering. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because yeah, she is Swedish, maybe. Oh uh, no, she's Swiss. Uh, she was born in Swiss. Switzerland, uh, then okay. moves to the United States. I'm not sure at what point. Um, mm-hmm. But then has spent a great deal of her academic life uh, in the United States, specifically. Right. Right. Yeah. Kind of doing stuff. Um, extremely famous name in kind of game studies and digital studies and narratology. That we have just never brought up in 62, 61 episodes of this program. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, I can't remember if Ryan has ever come up. I don't think we've ever brought her up. Uh, I don't think so. But I know she's been cited. Like, she's shown yeah, up oh, in books yeah. that we've read uh, as, like, here's a person who has a theory that does a thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but strangely enough, I don't think... Uh, we've ever had a moment where we've had to pull that out and then explain how that was in dialogue with something else. We read this book. Have you, uh, had you read this book before? It's the final book in the summer of agency. And I don't know how it's involved in agency. We'll have to get there. I decided to put it here and that was maybe a, a tactical error on my part. Yeah. Speaking of not knowing things. Speaking of not knowing things, I believe this book was about uh, something else other than what it is. No, it is about agency in some ways. But mm-hmm. uh, we, I, 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 I had more of a tactical thought. I just thought maybe there was more in it because I've read excerpts from this before, and I thought maybe the excerpts demonstrated something about the co- the whole context, and I was incorrect. Yeah, Michael Lutz, have you ever read this book before or engaged with Ryan's work broadly? No, I have not. Or if I have, it's been like reading excerpts from, if not this book, then some of the other books, because uh, uh, she writes on a lot of these themes, uh, like sort of cyber narrative, as it was called at one point, uh, and like narratology in digital spaces. And I believe she's also, she edited a Cambridge companion to either, it's either digital narrative or like new media narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I have never read this book, although I'm pretty sure I've read like articles by ryan before on this that or the other uh, mm-hmm. and just a little bit more biographical info here this book specifically was published in 2001 um, and it was published in a revised edition in 2015 and i think we can bracket that and talk about that later mm-hmm. because i don't really know what's going on there uh, but it's from the johns hopkins university press uh and ryan herself is an independent scholar at present um meaning she has no uh, academic appointment or affiliation as of the recording of this. Uh, But in the past, uh, she has been a scholar in residence uh, at the University of Colorado, and she was also a Gutenberg Fellow at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Germany from 2010 to 2011. Uh, She has an MA in linguistic in linguistics and German, a PhD in French, and a bachelor's in comp sci. And so all of that stuff uh, comes together in her research and in all of her interests. I think all of the stuff that I just said about like what her degrees are in are very much evident in the text of this book specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And and was involved. I uh, we we both 
you know, you referred to this video I sent you before. She was involved in engineering as an undergraduate, I think, mm. um, originally, because because that bachelor's was pursued while she was at another academic institution after the PhD, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is pretty interesting. So, yeah, a uh, broad thinking thinker, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a wordsmith. <laughs> So then uh, to touch on, you you asked if I had read this before. Um, I had not. Uh, And I am really interested now because I started reading the first edition, not knowing there was a revised edition from 2015. I I very purposefully did that. You very purposefully hid it from me? I didn't hide it. I wasn't (laughs) like, oh, Michael doesn't find out about the second edition. But they do look actually quite, I actually, you know, when I was making the decision about which one for us to do, um, I looked at them and they look quite different. Mm-hmm. They look kind of like different books. So it kind of looks like it's a second updated swing. And I was more interested in like the the first book, both as like a theoretical, right? Because like this is a theoretical invention in its time. This book mm-hmm. comes out in 2001. It's like immediately after Cybertext and also Hamlet on the Holodeck. Yeah. And so I was like, well, what does Ryan have to say about that moment? And when I was like looking through the table of the contents of the second uh, version, right, or edition two, it's like, this is more of a sequel that's kind of like returning to these ideas, or it looks that way uh, mm-hmm. from the external. But it's, it sounds like you've actually like read it. I, I didn't read it, but I also I looked at the table of contents and so, there's some overlap. Uh, but also like the blurb on the revised edition says that she talks about like World of Warcraft, which does not come up mm-hmm. at all here. Um, well, because it did not exist. Yeah, right. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I don't actually know what the size of the second edition is. I haven't held it in my hands. Uh, mm-hmm. But assuming it's the same size as this monograph and, you know, all other things being equal in terms of spacing and pagination and whatnot, it does look like the second edition is shorter. Yeah. Um, I mean, which is actually what, just one remark to make that this book is actually rather long. This book is sprawling in a very interesting way that I think only could have happened in 2001. I mean, I guess I could, agree. I mean, it yeah. could. It, it is nightmarishly long <laughs> in a way that feels nightmarish at the time. Like you I'm sitting and reading this thing and like, I, I think I have a lot of criticism of style in this book uh, in, in a broad sense. I, I, overall, I don't think that you came out of this book like loving it maybe mm-hmm. that's a kind of way of putting it i'm pretty neutral on it i think there's a lot of helpful ideas in here i think there's a lot of cool stuff but i think stylistically it feels like a hangover of the 90s mm-hmm. um every theoretical kind of maneuver that happened in the 90s every stylistic maneuver that happens in the 90s and this kind of literary theory desire just to keep going on and on and pile on examples there are whole chapters that do not have any additional argumentative content in them. They are just additional examples proving the point. Um, I think you could really easily cut big chunks of this. Yeah, so like structurally, uh, one of the ways that this book is very much of its time, very much of like the the late 90s and the early 2000s is uh, the chapter structure, like so there, are, there are parts to the book, okay? You know, this is all normal stuff. Like the book mm-hmm. is divided into parts. <laughs> book in parts. All right, got, got chapters. Right, okay. there are part. There are chapters within the parts. However, every couple chapters there is an interlude, um, and the interlude is at what you just said. Actually, it's about taking the ideas that were discussed in the chapters and then applying them to often not even uh, digital texts, but to like historical literary texts. 
mm-hmm. uh, and a, a fairly interesting like selection of these things. Uh, but it, it's very weird. Uh, I was like, what as reading this, and I was thinking like, overall, she does not actually talk much about video games, and I think like. Well, Page for page, this might have some of the most extended, like, literary discussion of anything we've read for this show. Yeah, it's not a book about video games. Yeah. Uh, which is maybe my... <laughs> if I made an error, it that was it. But but it, this is has been in conversation so many... You know, you get this is part of, like, the serial citations you get sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's called Narrative as Virtual Reality, obviously. And it is using, you know, to kind of, like, get into the content of the book a little bit, right? The moment of the emergence of virtual reality, as you know, like Jaron Lanier style, early 90s explosion of the idea of VR, Mm -hmm. it puts pressure on how we read and how we interact with stories. And like video games are part of that. And she does end up citing, you know, she cites Arthas, Arseth, Mm -hmm. she cites Murray and a bunch of other people of that time. Um, she gets into play studies. She goes and she does the Hosinga and Kawa maneuver, mm-hmm. you know, like all of the game studies just stuff is in here. But it, it's in here in order to kind of look at this pressure point between what does the emergence of VR mean for literature and uh, like literature that we think we already understand, you know, mm-hmm. like stuff from the 19th century or the postmodern novel or whatever, you know, pick your stuff. Things we think we already have pinned down. Those things might, uh, we might have new ways of reading them now that VR exists. And then on the flip side, how have, uh, how has literature and these different literary works, how have they primed us to understand virtual reality as a thing, period, mm-hmm. right? So like, this is like kind of crossover, but you're right. Yeah. Pound for pound, page for page, 10% is about games, maybe less. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you're looking for a book on games, this ain't it. Yeah. Yep, this is far more interested in, as I said, literature, but also like art history and interestingly enough, religious history shows up here mm-hmm. quite a bit. I mean, not surprising if you know anything about how art historically develops in Europe, but Oh my god, I'm looking at this. I'm sorry, I just you said oh the table of contents is different. I'm I'm comparing them. Between narrative is virtual reality one and all these excursions or the interludes are gone. Yeah. No wonder it's a hundred pages shorter. Yeah. <laughs> we should have read this version. <laughs> it's so funny. My, my, I was going to be like, yeah, we could just delete all those and the book would be way better. And it's like, yes, Ryan also thought that <laughs> and did that in V2. I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. That is wild to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I, and I think to some extent uh, that makes a lot of sense because, well, I mean, the ones that are about literally some like classic literature right there's like one of these that's on Baudelaire that 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 would be fine to keep over but then there's one that's entirely about uh a uh an interactive VHS movie uh that I actually ended up looking up on YouTube to see clips of and it is the corniest cheapest like most 90s like look what we can do with uh, this new technology kind of thing ever. Apparently, Michael Ian Black wrote for it. That's great. That was, (laughs) I like ended up watching through the credits and I was like, Michael Ian Black? And Uh, he just showed up and you like uh, flipped a chair around and sat (laughs) in it backwards or whatever? No, just his name showed up. He got his foot stuck in it? No, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. Have you seen that state sketch? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let me rap with you kids. (laughs) 
but yeah, so so that that is the big structure of the book. And, and as you said, there are sections, and the sections have chapters. I don't think this is going to be an episode where we go chapter by chapter necessarily, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of reproving the point. And this is, when I said it has some of the kind of theoretical excesses of the 90s, Ryan is very comfortable, like, telling you a thing and then blowing that out into, like, nine subsections. Mm -hmm. And that matters if you want to, like, take this and use it as a tool. You know what I mean? Like, the the gradations, she seems to have thought really intently and really smartly. You know, it's not just, like, effort on the page. It's, like, you know, intensive intellectual engagement about like how these things apply and where they apply and under what conditions and how they might be different in certain contexts, you know, and those are often be like numbered, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. straight up, here's nine different things to think about this or of kind of progressions. I feel the same way about those things as I often feel about a chart, which is like, I already read the thing. I don't, I don't need like this additional <laughs> thing, but um, you might as a reader, you might do that, but we don't have to go and we're not going to go through like every little bit of proof. It, it often feels kind of like a like a ge- uh, geometric proof in that way when it's, where it's like, we know this is true about interactivity because these 12 things that we're going to talk about and mm-hmm. take it on faith to read the book, <laughs> I think is my my <laughs> message to you, dear listener. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I guess we'll then probably just like move by sections then because the sections do a pretty good yeah. job at communicating what are the basic concerns of this book, which are also, of course, laid out in the introduction. In this way, it's mm-hmm. a much more typical academic monograph. Um, uh, and if we keep talking about how odd it is, one of the comparisons that we may make is something actually like uh, Hamlet on the Hollow Deck, yeah. uh, which was similarly like deeply speculative. That was Murray being like, here's all the things that could happen or that we could do. Uh, And that's sort of but not quite what Ryan is doing. Occasionally, there are moments where she's talking like that. Um, But it's but it is very much in the same spirit of the the kind of like 90s, the millennium turn. Right. Like Mm. what's going to happen with all this computerization, with the rise of the digital or the virtual being uh, the, the key term for this book. Uh, right. And uh, really, the thing that Ryan is trying to get at is come up with some sort of theory or description of what the aesthetic experience is when we mm-hmm. interact with uh, any sort of text, whether that be like traditional literary text, but also what that could be uh, with virtual reality and and anything that we do in VR. Uh, The reason being that VR for, and this is an explicit thing that she states, VR for Ryan is the end of media history, Mm -hmm. right? That is a thing that gets a kind of plateau or a horizon, right? Right. Uh, VR for this argument for this book functions as kind of a a horizon um, at which all media have become one medium, And so I think what Ryan is trying to do is come up with a a unified theory or actually phenomenology is a better way of putting it. That's the term that she uses, like a unified phenomenology of the aesthetic experience and particularly what that is or what it is going to be in the realm of VR or the rise of the digital or whatever. And also in that way, um, the book is a fascinating historical artifact because it is a wash in the turn of the millennium optimism around these things. Uh, and then also just make some called shots that 
turn out not to be correct. And I think it's interesting to like think about how differently Ryan in 2001 is thinking some of these points that uh, really go in different directions uh, mm-hmm. uh, by the vicissitudes of history or whatever. Um, and I can get more into that, I guess, as we talk. What's the central claim okay. of the book? What um, do you think? Okay. So, uh, overarching claim, right, is that VR is coming. And this is important. This is also important. VR is kind of not really here. Obviously, like, right now, you, I say VR and you listening have a, a specific idea uh, of what that means. Your Oculus Rift or, or whatever uh, commercial thing is, is on the market and you pay $1,000 mm-hmm. for. Yep. Uh, there was less of that, believe it or not, 20 years ago. So, uh, really VR is a conceptual thing for Ryan to start out with. And it is kind of like where all art is going. And so when we look at typical and and crucially, like, can I I add one more historical kind of point to that? Yeah. This book is coming out in the moment of the failure of VR, specifically. Mm. You know, the early 90s, because uh, she, you know, she quotes Jaron Lanier a bunch of times, right, about mm-hmm. like, why did VR not take off? Because in the early 90s, Jaron Lanier, if you're not familiar with him, he was kind of the the Palmer Lucky of his day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the young wunderkind who like w- was going to bring the truth of VR to everyone. And then people played with it. And it sucked. <laughs> and so the market wasn't there, right? You know, right. They, there was not a way to bring it to a kind of commercial market. And lots of people tried and it ultimately didn't go anywhere. And so the bulk of this work in this book is written in the moment where it kind of failed as a, a, a as an emergent media. Mm-hmm. And yet Ryan is holding on to it to be like, no, 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 no. Like, it just didn't happen. That doesn't mean it won't happen. And based on what we've experienced so far, here's where it will go. Mm-hmm. Right. So as you're saying, it's a speculative project, but it's also a speculative project that is like the future was here and we missed it. And now we're going to go back maybe, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll be the theorist to explain it to everybody. Right. Uh, and so one of the uh, sort of uh, little paths that comes off of this is actually there's a quite a bit of talk about hypertext here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as not, this is not how she frames it, right? But uh, f- structurally for the book, hypertext ends up functioning as a, a, a sort of companion thread to whatever was going on with VR. So she looks at what was happening with hypertext in the 90s, um, who was, you know, there's a lot of talk in here about like Michael Joyce, for instance, uh, who was a big name in, in 90s hypertext. Uh, and this provides for her a concrete example of what uh, what Murray would call a multi-form narrative could be, right? Or what Arseth would call just a cybertext, like a, a text that changes based on some sort of non-trivial input from the uh, reader user. So that gives her a kind of concrete example to talk about some of these things, because notably, uh, there is very little actual VR in this book, right? VR is more of a guiding metaphor or concept than a thing that is being closely read or discussed. Um and so this brings us to kind of what is the subclaim of the book or uh, uh, really where the meat is, in my opinion, right? Where is the argument actually happening? Uh, it is on these two key terms of immersion and interactivity. Uh, hypertext, for instance, gives us an example of interactivity, right? The, the text that changes in response to input, whereas immersion 
is both kind of the the ideal use of VR. You know, you put on the goggles and it's like, oh, I'm like really there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But also Ryan really wants to work the theory of immersion backward and uh, put that into dialogue with more typical literary history, right? She she really wants, and she, she talks about it in cinema as well, in television. Um, but Ryan, in this book at least, really wants to make a case for literature as an immersive medium and then trace immersion from literature into uh, digital, into the, the, the future, which is VR. Yeah, and so the... The book itself is about kind of playing out, as we've talked about, in a bunch of different examples, um, but also kind of trying to stretch it over a bunch of different um, use cases in mm-hmm. places where it happens. And so, like you said, hypertext shows up here. Uh, that early interactive VHS tape mm-hmm. thing shows up here as a way of thinking through what is story structure and how does medium determine short story structure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a thing she's really concerned about. This is not her first book. Probably her most famous book that came out before this is a book on multiple worlds mm-hmm. and like the actual theory of multiple worlds. And what's happening in this book is her kind of doing some application of that work as well, which is like, if you hold a set of, of, um, actual worlds in your head and then potential worlds in your head, how is that literalized by playing a video game or playing a kind of interactive narrative or whatever, where Mm -hmm. the interaction that you have might allow you to select from those different things. Right. Um, and so, um, it's connected up with the rest of her work in that way, really directly, um, and I, I, I don't know if I find that stuff compelling necessarily. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of this. I've seen big chunks of that first book. I wrote a book on speculation and I ultimately re- didn't really engage with this stuff because it feels a little like a cul-de-sac in some ways where it's like, you're either in with Ryan's theory of the way that story worlds kind of operate or you're not. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't think I am because I don't think that this is like, um, I don't think consideration of speculative worlds is like a thing that operates in ideality. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have like hold a bunch of worlds in our head. And I don't think that like potential worlds get realized through action. I think that like the, the everything is the movement of material and matter. And uh, those things are, are impacted by the previous world. I think it's a little loosey, loosey goosey philosophical for me. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like weird to hear from me, but <laughs> that, that is my, my feeling about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. That was, I'm, you know, I, I said uh, uh, one of my most, uh, I don't know, loathed terms, immersion earlier. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I I can read someone's theory of immersion, even though I tend to be typically critical of ideas about immersion and, and what people say is going on there. Um, and overall, I don't think the way, like, I, most of the... Uh, book. I don't think uh, Ryan is incorrect in sort of thinking about immersion in like a general sense or like it makes mm-hmm. sense. But like it, it, the way that she explains immersion is tacked on to this possible worlds or many worlds uh, thing. Mm-hmm. And it's and that was like a real like mm, moment of friction for me where it's whereas like I've we've actually read books like Kaya's, uh what did, what was it called in game? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. Where yeah. like in-game. Uh, even though I tend not to be receptive to immersion and in like a general sense, like I found stuff that was useful in that book and it didn't require me to also buy into possible worlds theory and modal logic in order to get there. Right. 
Right. Well, I think a really interesting thing in this book that kind of comes up over the first part and then is, you know, a major thing. You've already gestured at it. But is the kind of tension that happens here between uh, immersion and interactivity Mm -hmm. and that those are held as being um, oppositional to one another. Yeah. Uh, The more you interact with a thing, the less immersive it can be. And the more immersive something is, the less likely you are to interact with it. That's not something that basically anyone else agrees with, it seems, right? Like, in game studies, certainly, right? Like, interactivity affords immersion. Mm -hmm. You know, if if we can say there's, like, a general formula, right, for, Mm -hmm. like, the theory of immersion is that interactivity affords immersion Mm -hmm. because you're able to get involved in it. You know, think of flow. Think of some of the ways that Janet Murray talks about that, right? You Mm -hmm. know, immersion is given over to you because you can get in the system and interact with it and play with it or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the Ted Friedman stuff. I don't think we ever talked about it here, but Ted Friedman wrote a really influential uh, piece in maybe the early 2000s, maybe the 90s on SimCity and the effect of like sitting and playing SimCity all night. Like what happens when that when you do that? You know, the one more turn effect. Mm-hmm. But I really like the provocation here that like, in fact... No, like if, if you think that's happening to you, something else is occurring because you're like, uh, for her, you're giving yourself over to the story world, mm-hmm. uh, the textual immersive experience, and maybe interactivity is happening within that. But fundamentally, if you're a- asked to interact too much or too intently, it will pull you out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think there might that might be right. This might be why I don't experience immersion. She actually gives a uh, a key term for what we are. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. Like the imaginative interactor or something it's like buried somewhere in this book i don't i don't even have the page i must have missed that the imaginative interactor it's so it uses the word imaginative is part of it or Uh imaginary uh but yeah the explanation of it because there's so many i i can't stress to you if you're just a listener there's so many key terms in Mm -hmm. this book you know there may there might be 70 or 100 uh, there are just so many specialized words that are either borrowed from someone else and kind of redefined and interacted with or or invented for this book that it's pretty wild to like try to track them all. I don't know how you would like note take your way through through it in that way. It seems like there's a lot of stuff kind of being given to us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there it, it basically is like interacting. It's when she's talking maybe about like uh, modernist text somewhere, you know, like actual textual mm-hmm. stuff or the or, no, I'm sorry. It's when she's talking about the postmodern novel as like oh. a form. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, um, that it's keeping your analytical mind going while also still like accepting the, the world being given to you in the story. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like the imaginative something reader or something like that. But interesting. Uh, but yeah. But anyway, that, that tension, I think, is actually productive and interesting. Um, although I don't think you're on board. Well, much like Job was not on board. Uh, Michael Lutz is not on board. I, uh, so one, I think that this is maybe one of the most interesting things about the book, because as you already said, I think anyone who is coming to like game studies or thinking about ideas of immersion afterward is, uh, uniformly going to be like, well, obviously like the more stuff I can do in a game, it's going to be more immersive. Now, that's not really going to work, but like, uh, there is something really fascinating about the way that Ryan, uh, does set these terms in opposition because she straight up says that the most immersive medium is film Mm -hmm. because you don't do anything. You just sit there and watch it and then you can be immersed. So like anytime where you are, uh, 
asked to do something, you know, what that what Arseth would call er, uh, ergodic, right? When you were asked mm-hmm. to expend effort uh, for Ryan, at least as she theorizes it here. And this is one of the things I wonder if it changes at all in the revised edition. But um, anytime you have to, like, make a choice and do something, you have anytime that interaction has to happen, you are no longer immersed. Uh, and I don't know if I'm necessarily not on board with that idea. It's more just like, because I am so skeptical of immersion in the first instance, Mm -hmm. um, I don't like, I might not divide immersion and interactivity in this way, not because I think everything, uh, that is interactive is immersive, but mainly because as, as I've said at multiple points on the show by, by now, um, I think immersion is often a way of describing uh, the experience of your attention being directed in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that is true, right, if, if my own assumption is true, uh, then interaction is just a different way of focusing your attention, right? It's all about, like, m- the management of attention within uh, the interaction with the object. Yeah. Do you, um, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, how much we want to, um, pull into this, like, you know, we're, we're little parking lot here, right? Mm-hmm. You got a note here. Okay. That I'm seeing here. Yeah. Uh, about the immersion of, uh, like, our capacity to be immersed in story worlds. That's, mm-hmm. like, crucial to her argument. Mm-hmm. Which is that, like, when we read books or watch movies... We believe these people might be real. Yeah. That feels like that is an explosive claim. I mean, to me, yeah. I I would say if there's one real maybe issue that I have with the way that Ryan is theorizing immersion in this book is that she takes it she takes the term literally. Mm-hmm. Right? This is why possible worlds is important. Um so uh just to say, where where are we on this book at this point? We are like, so part one yeah. is entirely about the idea of the virtual, and we've skipped over mm-hmm. this and uh, all of this, but we can come back to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we will. Well, because it, it, the book does read weirdly that way, in that part one is like, are you on board with what the virtual is? You know, do you know about VR, and do you have like a concept of this um, philosophical term? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Here's possible worlds theory. My (laughs) theory of virtuality is only possible by accepting the second part. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, So uh, by part two, when uh, she specifically is doing the chapters on immersion, um, she talks about so she talks about uh, immersion as necessitating a uh, story world into which you can imaginatively project yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. That is to say, like that there is a, a kind of, a, a, you know, something that you do in your head or like whatever, not like a literal second self. But um, just the the way that she talks about immersion, right, is very spatialized in this way. And it is very immersive in that literal sense where you are reading a book or playing a game and you are watching a film and you are identifying closely with some actor in the film, not like the literal actor, but like the character, whatever they have goals. At one point, she says, you know, the the uh, what we do when we read stories is that even if we know the ending, we are aligned with the characters who are facing the story that is their destiny uh, sort of ignorantly. 
right? That's a very rough paraphrase, but yeah. uh, the the her her entire theory of art is uh, very identificatory in this way and very much about uh, projecting into. Uh, the story world. And then the other key point for immersion that she says is what you were referring to, where she says, um, uh, and this comes up in a couple ways. One, one way she talks about it is that you are reading and it's like you are reading about a real world that really exists and is autonomous. Uh, another way that she talks about it is that it's as if you're reading and you forget that you're reading. That you mm-hmm. you are not even aware that you're reading anymore. That the language becomes transparent. This is the big thing. Mm-hmm. She talks. She uh, dives into Bolter and Grusin for this. Their book remediation. Uh, immersion is predicated on the transparency of the medium, of it becoming in some way uh, not uh, uh, you know unimportant, but like something that you can see through. Something that doesn't pose any uh, problems to you in terms of you getting into the story and feeling it and identifying with the characters. This is why interaction uh, breaks immersion, right? Because it makes you step back and like realize, oh, there's an interface here and I have to choose whether or not the character does this or that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I maybe take issue with this if only because I think it is it puts so much weight on the word immersion. Yeah, and uh, I think that part of that has to do with the era that this is written in, which is like, we, we need words, <laughs> you know, like, because that's what unifies cybertext and um, Hamlet on the holodeck and remediation, right? Which is like, there's some stuff happening with computers, mm-hmm. and we just don't have enough good words for it. And I think that's partially what makes uh Arseth's book in particular feels so aggressive in certain places mm-hmm. because you know at his heart he's got a really good a, a good idea and concern which is like if we're not careful we won't have new words we'll just use the old words to talk about the new thing and we won't have actually good descriptions you know we we will not we will end up using the wrong toolbox mm-hmm. right and sometimes that happens right you can read like literary studies-ish versions of video games that just treat it like it is a Wikipedia story summary. You know, in the year 2023, this stuff gets published. Mm -hmm. And you're like, hold on now. There's like all kinds of like things that you're doing in the game that are like interventive or conceptual (laughs) or you're thinking about it, right? It's not just like some... It it is not like catacritically perfectly translatable into text, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I've read essays about video games that do not mention that you use uh, any form of player control, you know, Mm -hmm. like that stuff still happens. So, uh, you know, the, I think in the context of its moment of like, you know, 96, 97, uh, up through the early two thousands, this kind of maneuver is like really important, but I think you're exactly right that the, because Ryan is interested in like taking immersion and then taking virtuality and then, breaking that out into like 800 concepts each, you know, like how do these things shake out and how do they interact with one another? Because of that, you're right. You know, it's like um, immersion's a big basket and Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff has to sit in the basket together, Mm -hmm. Um, including like the history of religious art, which is just kind of hard to square, right? Right, Right. Uh, by the end of this, yeah, like uh, uh, we're talking about literally religious ritual and how it also produces immersion in its audience. Yeah. 
Right. Um, and so it, that's kind of the first two sections of the book broadly is like trying to get to that um, and trying to get kind of to a composite theory of it. Do you, do you want to talk more about immersion here or do you want to talk about virtuality? Because those are kind of like the two big key terms. Yeah, let's jump back and just uh, talk about virtuality because it is, yeah. uh, you know, her theoretical uh, scaffolding for everything that follows. Yeah, and so she basically says, hey, the word virtual gets used, you know, this is something I brought up on the show before, but the term virtual gets used in two different ways, maybe three ways, but kind of two predominant ways, and then like a secret third way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she even says that. She's like, actually, there's a third way, but, and I don't really care about talking about it. Um, One is that anything to do with computers is virtual. Yes. (laughs) Right, like virtual meaning possible, right? And so like computers get to mean the kind of possibility space engines. And so if you use the word virtual, you mean computers. When we say virtual reality, that's what we mean. Computer reality, right? I mean, that that is, and especially if you go back and read anything from the 90s, she's citing a bunch of kind of like, I would say like popular writing, not, not magazines or anything like that, but like people who are thinking through the big, broad implications, the kind of New York Times bestsellery stuff uh, of, of, you know, the 90s and, and uh, yeah, mostly in the 90s. And it's clear virtual means that. She also mm-hmm. uses this other version. She's like, there's a theoretical concept of the virtual. Um, and she talks about Dulles and Guattari briefly. I, this is an aside, but I think she gets this part of Dulles and Guattari absolutely wrong. I, I don't agree with the way that this is this is kind of presented to us. Mm-hmm. And then she gives us Baudrillard and uh, does a really great analysis of the way that virtuality and, and kind of computational thinking shows up through Baudrillard and puts it through the simulacra mm-hmm. uh, argument, right? Which is the idea that uh, the procession, procession of simulacra in Baudrillard is the idea that um, culture, the, the culture that he is writing about, which is like Western representational culture. And I mean, representational, not in the sense of like representing people, but the system of representation itself mm-hmm. um, begins to abstract itself from uh, material reality, right? So, like, uh, there was a time. It, this is a real simplification. Baudrillard doesn't make this claim, but this is just like a back of the envelope version of it. Uh, there was a time when you got the news by um, hearing someone who came, you know, by where you lived and told you about it, your neighbor, and then you went to the salon and you would all get a newspaper and you would see what was up and you would discuss it and do that, and then you would get. There was a time where you would get your newspaper delivered at home, and so it's this kind of. Um, rhetorical presentation of reality that is removed from the material conditions of the war or whatever. Um, and then we started getting on television. Um, and then we started getting, um, I don't know, now we get on the internet and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that the simulacrum is like a, um, f- I, I mean, the way she is putting it here is like, it's a false version of reality. It's not that, it's that it is, a version of presentational reality that's based on the representational mechanisms that came before it and builds on top of them. Um, what she doesn't do is go, and she does a really good job of like 90s Baudrillard and beyond of like talk, 80s Baudrillard talking about it. What she doesn't really do is go backward in Baudrillard to where these uh, arguments initially get made when Baudrillard like is much more of a kind of Marxisty kind of thinker, or at least starts as a more Marxisty kind of thinker, mm-hmm. um, where he says that ultimately what the problem is, the reason I gave that back of the envelope version is so I can give a little more detailed version here. Baudrillard believes that um, 
the uh, signifying capability of language has subsumed reality. And that the signifying capability of media has subsumed the world that we live in. So, for example, he famously wrote a book that's called The Gulf War Did Not Take Place. Mm -hmm. And his argument for that is because the Gulf War as a war that did affect real human beings, but because it was almost entirely fought through media technologies, through presentation, through uh, claims for the war, claims against the war, um, through legitimation mechanisms for kind of telewar, you know, um, uh, Patriot missiles to shoot down Scud missiles, things like that that our communication technologies have eaten reality that is in fact just the representations that speak to one another at this point and whatever possible material reality we used to think maybe we could access at some point is totally uh alienated from what actually matters which is how we talk about the world how we represent it how we funnel it through communication technology the cynic in me which i would never be as much of a cynic as baudrillard but the cynic in me thinks, okay, sure, <laughs> like, <laughs> fine. The reason I say all of that is that that is the starting point for the way that Ryan kind of thinks this problem is that, yes, you know, media technologies have eaten reality. And if media technologies have eaten reality, then what the ethical or moral problem or the like uh, necessary problem that stands in front of us is, is how do we deal with that? Right. Mm-hmm. And one of those is, smashing this into multiple worlds theory, which like comports really easily to this of what the actual issue is, is multiple competing worlds and the representation of competing worlds. The multiple worlds theory is very helpful for giving you a handle on that. Mm-hmm. Is all, does all that feel like a, a like an acceptable um, Baudrillard summary to you, Michael? Is there anything you want to add or, or that I got wrong? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's actually uh, really helpful and it's a good way to maybe narrow down a little bit what Ryan is doing here, specifically with the idea of virtual reality, because this occurred to me within, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe the first two chapters. Um, But because uh, Ryan is mainly talking about VR as a theoretical thing, Mm -hmm. uh, it can get as big as she wants it to be. Right. Like that's (laughs) right. Uh, It still can. I mean, this in 2023, this is still how VR is talked about. Right. Like it can still get as big as you want it to be even though repeatedly people do not care about it it seems right (laughs) right and so it's just such a small part of any marketplace it's a part of and so it ends up for ryan like uh vr uh for ryan ends up being a way to talk about how does uh our experience of art make reality right Mm -hmm. like in in like the broadest sense like this is how we can get from uh, Whatever is going on in 2001 to talking about walking through a Baroque cathedral, right? It's, yeah, it's like yeah. the experience of art is an experience that produces in some way um, um, a world for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the theorization of it allows you to kind of apprehend historically what was happening already. Right. Right. You know, this language is helpful for projecting into the future. What is VR and what's the kind of issue or interest of VR? It's also helpful for explaining how we were already engaging with art, mm-hmm. right? um, which uh, that's her claim. And, and that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the uh, this book is, a, is about, and she says this very directly, right? This book is about how does uh, VR present a problem for our current theories? And then how does VR help us understand what we were already doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why the postmodern novel ends up mattering so much. Right. Uh, so is that, is that mainly what's going on with virtual there? 
I think so. Yeah. So you know, the her theory of virtuality is to try to get to understand that right. This idea of uh, the, the kind of floating uh, representational mechanisms of reality, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the we don't we don't have access to you know the big capital R real, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know capital M material, capital R real, in the way that we used to because we are so highly mediatized. Uh, and of course, VR emerges in that late '80s, early '90s. You know, she's quoting Jaron Lanier here, um, and uh, presents that as like an actual technology that's that that uh, grounds that stuff. So if like if you have a theory of the virtual, oh my God, we've got a, a machine you can plug into called virtual reality that actually enacts a bunch of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Then we get the section two that we've already talked about right here around immersion. There's a little like excursus into Baudelaire and, and Heisman's. Yeah. Heisman's. I don't know how you say that. I've read the work before, but uh, it you can read it on your own time. Yeah. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't matter yeah. uh, for, for what we're doing here. So we, we do that. We go into the immersion stuff we've already talked about. Um, that's also where we get some of the religious iconography stuff. We do get some pretty cool, like different versions of immersion here, or different like stories about how immersion works. Chapter four is on spatial immersion. Chapter five is on temporal and emotional immersion. I thought those were all interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's in way it uh, you know uh, anticipates Kaya's book because his whole deal mm-hmm. was about taking. Uh, what seems to be or like what is often talked about is like one unified thing immersion and being like actually when you're playing a game or when people play games there seems to be specific aspects of the gameplay experience that different people get into yeah right Uh, and this is helpful because yeah spatial immersion is not the same thing as temporal or emotional immersion Uh, uh, let's see was there anything interesting here I mean, just, you know, more on, like, my immersion thing. Like, when she talks about uh, language becoming transparent, mm-hmm. uh, this is, uh, you know, my version of you saying that you don't experience immersion, although I guess I've also said that, except I've also said that I do. I just don't like it. Uh, when she talks about, like, reading a novel um, and specifically reading the way that a character's thoughts are being described by the narration uh, and pointing out that there is not like a a personalized narrator that comes between the character and the reader who is like conveying those thoughts. It's just being conveyed by the narrative uh, flow itself. Uh, Just quoting here from page 132, the reader does not watch a narrator watching Evelyn watch the street through the window, but by virtue of the transivity of the representation of mental processes, she directly perceives Evelyn's perception. Um, And this is like, this is where I like have all my quibbles, right? Just sort of the ways that this gets framed. Uh, Like Evelyn's perception isn't real. Right. There's yeah, nothing to that's p- the thing where it's made up. Right. There's nothing to perceive. The reader does not perceive anything. The reader is perceiving language. And I think maybe if uh, uh, especially with regards to like literature, if there's a way that I don't experience immersion, it is because I am never not aware that I'm reading. Right. There's never. This a is po- also why I can beat up Batman. Yeah. <laughs> and all of my senses are better. My, all of the senses in my head are, are more powerful than Superman's. Mm hmm. Because he's not real. Yeah. And I saved all of my uncles. Take that, Peter Parker. (laughs) Not even one. (laughs) Michael has spent most of his life uh, tripping criminals (laughs) to make sure they never get toward his near, even within an inch of his uncle. I'll trip any man running toward my uncle. 
Yeah. Try me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is just, uh, uh, there. there is a way that um, Ryan talks about immersion that sometimes is something that I'm on board with, and then sometimes I'm not, because I just don't, like, I don't ever forget that I'm reading a book, and there has never been a point when I've read a book that the world that the book is describing seemed autonomous, and that's a word that she uses, right? The, the kind of mm-hmm. ideal case for Ryan Um and this is, I think, part of actually, like, th- I think this is one of the reasons also, like, why ritual and religion um, show up here so much, right? Is that mm-hmm. art for Ryan is an experience of transcendence, um, or at least it often seems to, like, carry that kind of connotation with it. Uh, and uh, not that I don't like reading or art, uh, but... Uh, oh, here we go. The transcendence is, is not quite, uh, I don't know, it's not the feeling that I have about it, right? I don't feel right, like art right. pulls me out of the world in the way that Ryan seems to think and often asserts art does. Yeah. Yeah, across these chapters, and look, this might also, this is real, this might also be a generational shift, mm-hmm. right? We grew up with computers. We we grew up uh, within a world of, like, shifting multimodality, right? You know, like, from tape cassette to VHS to computer to book, right? You Mm -hmm. know, as as a a youth, I moved pretty quick between those two things, between all those things in a way that like really, you know, young people today don't really do so much because uh, they have a phone, right? Uh That has like all those things in it already. So so it it might be that immersion is operating differently differently for Ryan, who's quite a bit older than we are, uh, and then differently for us and then differently for, for the generation. Because yeah, you're exactly right. Like, in case you're a listener who's interested in, in the way some of these things shake out, I mean, you know, Ryan gets really deeply into, like, first-person narration, second-person narration, free and direct discourse. Like, how do they communicate experience, and how do you, like, align yourself with them? And I'm with you, Michael. Like, I, I don't, right? I'm just, like, I'm reading the thing. There's a, there's a whole section here, too, about suspense, and this is partially where the length of the book comes from, is just, like, Ryan does a really... Um, uh, comprehensive is probably the best word for it. Just a, a comprehensive and really direct explanation of, in her estimation, why does suspense work? And like walks us through the pieces and then walks through numbered questions. What is suspense? How or why suspense? Who suspense? Mm-hmm. Meta suspense, right? Like, like these different kind of, Forms and functions and the way it happens. It's like across five pages or whatever. Right. I was reading good old, our, you know, Michael Weehunt's book the other day. Mm-hmm. He's a very suspenseful writer. You know, mm-hmm. He writes horror, but often suspense and, and a lot of tension in that. Or, or uh, reading um, uh, Please Be Mean to Me, mm-hmm. yeah. Alison Rumfitt's book, right? Yeah. Scary too. You know, got some suspense. Give me the, gives me the uh, old uh, hair standing up on your arms. It doesn't make that happen because I think I'm experiencing these things or even that I'm like in the shoes of these characters. Like I can I understand why the things happens like intellectually to me. Right. Mm -hmm. It happens because I imagine, man, it would suck to be in that position. (laughs) Like like it's I have a meta thought every time, which is like, oh, I'm glad this ain't happening to me. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and maybe for maybe that's a difference too, just of narrating that experience. Maybe for Ryan, that just means I have I am having that experience because I can think of myself in that position and it freaks me out. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's just shortcutting. 
right. in, in a way. Or maybe we just apprehend what that means differently. Right. I'm not getting lost in the, in, the, in the Michael Weehunt story about the weird thing that lives in the wood pile behind the house, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in this first-person narration. That hasn't happened to me. But I do have the kind of um, phenomenological, right, the experiential component that does happen to me. So, you know, maybe this is just a difference of description. I'm open to that, right? But certainly I had the same quibbles maybe that you did. And this all moves toward a chapter that I'm flipping through the thing. It's chapter, it's, or maybe uh, it's an interlude. Mm-hmm. Virtual narration as allegory of immersion. Mm-hmm. Which is, this all leads to like virtual narration as its own form. Of narration, mm-hmm. which really to me just seems like experience. Mm-hmm. Say more. Because she says this. Virtual narration, as I propose to define the term, is a way of evoking events that resist the expectation of reality inherent to language in general and to narrative discourse in particular. Philosophy may periodically relativize, destabilize, or even reject the notion of reality, but narrative and expository language knows little of these doubts. Even in an atmosphere of radical anti-realism, such as the contemporary zeitgeist, language remains firmly rooted in truth and reality. The unmarked case of modality is the indicative, and to narrate in the indicative is to present events as true fact. I think I I would quibble with that. Uh-huh. I don't I don't think that that's like the lesson to learn from the linguistic turn. Yeah. And, and like. She has a full case for why that is. So, you know, I can't I can't say I think she's like off the cuff wrong because she is defining that very tightly and, and doing a really good job, but like I don't know if that's the lesson to learn from semiotics. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I I that's not where anyway, point being. Um as long as the narrator or the implied speaker uses the indicative mode, the reference world is identified as the world in which this narrator is located. The real mode of narration is found in both fiction and nonfiction and is independent of the truth value of the discourse. Even the false can be told as true fact. Otherwise, lies would never deceive and errors never mislead. So her like theory of language here is like, we can present all kinds of like falsehoods or whatever, but the way that language functions is to present whatever is being said or you know presented as a fact claim, mm-hmm. you know, so if I said like, uh, all cows are red, that's mm-hmm. not, tr- we know that's not true, but that's beside the point because <laughs> the way that language function is assertive of all cows being red. Uh huh. Is that, is that acceptable to you? I'm sorry. I was just imagining a car. Just one. All cows are red. Yep. That's right. <laughs> that's where I was going. Uh huh. A car. Uh, you know, you know what else is is red? What? Lightning McQueen. <laughs> Think about that. Huh. They, I, uh, that big uh, uh, redneck truck should have a car written on its side. <laughs> <laughs> really go after them. You know, they're yeah. they're going to be mad as hell at that Disney Pixar. But point being is that she she says, okay, if that's the function of language, is to kind of like compel everything as a truth claim because you know language makes positive statements about the world in the mm-hmm. sense that like they are statements of of truth then can you have a narrative form that does not take that for granted that takes potential or speculation or capability or almost actuality as its initiating claim mm-hmm. she's describing a video game right yes Where it, like the the world in front of us is one that we like uh, sort through by our actions and we think about uh constantly right we as i write about my book right like you don't know what's going to happen when you hit the button 
Mm-hmm. It's predictable. You have a cohort. You have a, a population of potential actions that you feel pretty confident in, but you don't know. Right. Ever. And so that's the same kind of idea that she's talking about here, I think, mm-hmm. unless you disagree with that. No, I think that seems about right. And it's good because it gets us right into the next section, which is that was all about immersion, right? The idea that uh, mm-hmm. uh, we take things in fiction to be real or present, right? Uh, we identify or have some sort of emotional stake in what's going on. Uh now we move into interactivity where we have to start making choices about what is happening in the story or what have you, uh, which, as we've already said, is in some ways, not in some ways, actually, I think definitionally for Ryan is uh, counterpoised to immersion. Uh, and so one of the kind of guiding questions for the back half of this book then is like, how how do these things become reconciled or rather, how will they become reconciled in the digital media to come? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah um, the first chapter then in Poetics of Interactivity that's the, the third section uh, th- this looks to uh, like uh, hypertext again uh, and how that uh, how to put this well so there's a whole history of other stuff that's going in here that actually comes up in like Espen Arthas' uh, cybertext, right? That when hypertext comes onto the scene in the 80s, uh, uh, the people who really pick this up and run with it tend to be uh, academics uh, who become very, in, who are like, you know, sort of steeped in postmodernist theory. Uh, and so mm. there are all these claims made about how like, ah, the role of the writer and reader are being merged together into one or they're abolished altogether. And, mm. uh, the readers have been empowered and so on and so forth. And, uh, quite yeah, rightly, uh, Bolter, uh, Jay Bolter ends mm-hmm. up becoming like the representative of this group. Yes. In uh, this book. Uh, and quite rightly, I think uh, Ryan is a bit skeptical of like the big claims made for empowerment and agency by these particular advocates of hypertext. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and she also points out uh, and this is I mean, it's not petty. It could have been way pettier than it is. But she points out also most of the stuff that these people are making is stuff that other academics with similar interests like it is not yeah. popular stuff. And I think, I mean, that's correct. Like, that is absolutely correct. Yeah, uh, of course. But I also think that this is in some way uh, bound up in some interesting claims that come from the previous one where, uh, again, like Ryan has a very, you were talking about generations earlier. Ryan has a very generational attitude uh, about immersion in that she says that like the 19th century novel is like the apex of textual immersion. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that and she says that, uh, you know, it, it, all this like sort of postmodern literature. Uh, Bro, that... I'm thinking about the Grand Inquisitor. <laughs> Wait, well, I'm thinking about what if I got to be right with God? Yeah. And my brother's like not on board. <laughs> I got my dad here talking shit in my ear about like what's religion. <laughs> I'm immersed. Right. I'm Russian now. Right. So uh, Ryan makes the claim. Where's the czar? That like the tradition over there. of 19th century realism survives unbroken to present day popular literature. Yeah. Whereas uh, postmodern literature, which is going to be filled with like formal experimentation and like weird estrangements and so on and so forth. Things that for her make literature more interactive. 
right? But because like the point there is the the language doesn't is no longer transparent. You're supposed to be aware of the fact that the story is being mediated to you, and this is bound up in uh the, you know the whole postmodern turn. Uh, uh, leotard and the fall of the grand narratives and so on and so forth. She says that uh, one of the things that like postmodernist like literature, like non cyber postmodernist literature uh, and like hypertext have in common is this uh, you know, she rightly points to Derrida uh, as being one of the uh, like sort of uh, uh, sources of this of like the idea of like text is game Mm -hmm. Uh, and Ultimately, she comes down on the side of like, listen, like, uh, it's not really that gamey. <laughs> like, it's ultimately, she says, it's 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 not terribly useful to talk about uh, texts as games, uh, at least partly because, and again, this is I think a, a product of where she is in the time, but but like, uh, something like Michael Joyce, uh, his cybertexts, his hypertexts don't have win conditions. They're mm-hmm. uh, very often about like giving you a huge, she says uh, that they're spatial and this. Yeah. Like, and I would agree, right. Yeah. They're, they're about giving yeah. you a, a big selection of potential like Lexia or like scenes, vignettes to kind of like read, work your way through and like form in your mind an interpretation or some kind of coherent narrative. Uh, but they themselves are, you know, they're, they're just kind of like a database of stuff that you work through until you're satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think I like this kind of uh, even early on, right, in, in terms of like the history of the thing. Um, they're kind of pumping the brakes here. Mm-hmm. Like, hold on now. It, 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 is the language we have developed for this actually appropriate for the objects we're talking about? Right. I think it's good. I think it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, then we have some more stuff about hypertech. Basically, right, uh, she correctly outlines that uh, if you say, is it in this section? I think it is, where she talks about how if a uh, piece of hypertext or a story or whatever has, like, four endings, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you can like if you have four endings, you can be like, OK, this ending, this ending, this. And you like you can sort of compare them or you, you know, play through or read through multiple times and get them. Uh, but if a story had like a uh, 100 endings, that's just that's just a story with a lot of endings. Like that's so many endings that you can't even or you, know, you could, I guess. Right. But like it become the effort you would have to expend to like take in all of them and then come to some sort of cohesive uh, conclusion about them is, is so great um, that really like the the question becomes if you're designing a story that is multi-form or that is going to have some sort of cyber textual component uh, the issue is not like oh we just need to have as many endings as possible uh, it's what are the endings that you want to have or kind of what are the paths that you need to have? How do you ultimately constrain interactivity in order to make what interactivity you have seem worthwhile or valuable? Right. And she kind of moves through that to uh, in order to like read backward to the Calvino book. I found a winner's not a traveler, which I'm uh, on record as not liking. <laughs> and <laughs> guess what? Still don't like it. <laughs> Too cute. Yeah. Calvino is just, he's too, he's too, you know what? I'm going to use an early 2000s word. You ready? Okay. He's smarmy. Oh, yeah. I don't really think, I don't actually think I was just, I'm saying that to be uh, <laughs> like a silly guy. I don't think he's actually smarmy. I just think a little too um, funny, you know, a mm-hmm. little too fun, having too much stuff, but um, kind of uses this theory to 
read Calvino, right? Like, can mm-hmm. this theory work for just text? Sure, I guess. Um, then, like, gives us hypertext really directly and then reads Michael Joyce's 12 Blue that you were talking about. Gives mm-hmm. us, like, the full read. And this was the point. This chapter in <laughs> excuse me. This chapter in particular was the one where I was like, oh, we are just, it's just an example. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's just the the thing as it is. Uh, but as you've pointed out uh, in your notes, this is like another place where interact- interactivity and immersion, like, get to fight against one another. Right. right. And yeah. it's also because the interactivity here, it seems like a critique or an idea she has about Joyce here is that, like, because it doesn't, it's really just about creating connections between things. It doesn't have this like powerful end state to it or whatever. That chasing the interactivity and trying to get to some sort of coherent thing actually uh, interrupts the immersion because mm-hmm. you're kind of looking for the other thing. Um, I'm teaching a seminar on games right now, and uh, we we were uh, playing like an art game. I don't want to say which one. We're playing like a kind of a contemporary art game that, you know, doesn't have like strong goals or anything. You just kind of play the thing. One of my students said, um, I just really wish it had coins <laughs> to, to collect. And then another student said not to like be like, why would it have that? And this is like the interesting thing, you know. The other student didn't say, well, why? The other student said, well, what would you spend the coins on? That, right, which right. Is, which was like which is like a powerful statement to be like, yeah, if there's coins, you need to spend them on something. Like, why would you just have coins? That's uh, you know, it was like the next game design logic, and I say that not to just be like, oh, my wild wacky students, but it's the same thing she's talking about from like 1997, which is that um, just doing the work of reading and doing the thing, but strung along the game structure, this interactive structure, kind of puts you in a funnel for like thinking about interactive interactivity as its own set of values. And she would does, isn't using that language here, but that's kind of what it leads me to think about, right? Interactivity has values to it. You know, mm-hmm. you know affordances of particular um, expectations around it. And mm-hmm. that, yeah, that probably does like interrupt whatever people's uh, model of immersion is. It probably does pull you out of something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought that was pretty, pretty helpful and interesting. And weirdly enough, reading this at the same time and then like having that experience, I was like, my God, you would never believe your perfect example, you know, to this argument from book from 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and then we get what I think is like, for me, the big chapter of the book, the book, the chapter of the book where I was like, okay, if I were going to teach this, I would pull this chapter out. You know, I don't think I would teach this whole book. But I think I could teach this next chapter. Chapter eight, can coherence be saved? Selective interactivity and narrativity, mm-hmm. which is basically just like, what is the upper limit of doing like this kind of game? Yeah, right. This is uh, this can, is specifically can you the make chapter her where... story. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like <laughs> if this is the chapter where the one hundred endings versus four endings example comes up, right? That you yeah. have to be selective in your interactivity in order to have. You have to have basically. You have to have design logic, right? You have to have something that yeah. you're working toward. Uh, yeah. 
this is weirdly enough this is not a quote from her but this is just like a paraphrase that i made of like one of the the distilled points that she makes uh dramatic narrative aims to control emotional response right traditional dramatic narrative as we understand it right a story with beginning a middle and an end so a system designer must foresee potential interactions uh with the player user and aim toward the desired effect but the need to guide the player user reader whatever without revealing the purpose Um, Because uh, here she's saying the point of interactivity in in a medium like this is to uncover the purpose yourself, right? That the Mm -hmm. the feeling of playing a game is figuring out, well, like, what am I doing and why am I doing it? That is what makes dramatic structure for the game. So you have to be able to communicate to the player what they're doing uh, and sort of anticipate maybe what they want to do or give them the things that they want to do without necessarily... Uh, giving them full blast, like, here's the context for everything right at the start. Mm-hmm. Or, like, how do you um, make a story out of that, right? Of that type of revelation. Right. Yeah, and she gives us, like, a bunch of, uh, like, little model examples. You know, like, here's a bunch of story structures. And by golly, wouldn't you know that basically it's just video games today. Like, yep. I was looking at this and I was like, I don't know if I can think of a game that doesn't follow one of these, like, eight models she gives. Mm-hmm. Um so it's pretty helpful and also helpful for thinking about like what is the amount of you know based on literary theory and the kind of ideas that are coming out of literary theory how much mental load could you expect someone to take on. Mhm. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Although uh, as you've pointed out in your notes there's like some real uh there's a quote you wrote down there's something about the seven tone scale and about linear narrative that seems to make them indispensable to western culture and arguably for the latter to culture in general which uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. I mean, there is, and again, I think this is generational. There is a very clear uh, sense in this book uh, that good art is good art. Like, and it, oh, and, yeah, it, and it transcends history in that way. Um, uh, like one of the other critiques that I would make of the way that she talks about immersion, right, is that uh, she often talks about immersion as if it's purely a result of artistic technique rather than a result of certain modes, habits, tropes, or whatever bits of storytelling being uh, habituated, right? That, yeah. that, that there, yeah. are, there are things that are easier for us to swallow because they're familiar or they're stereotypical. And part of uh, uh, the postmodern way of, and she does in fact call this out, one of the things that postmodern novels do is they break the familiar story structure, which makes you have to think about the story structure in a way that you don't when it's a familiar one yeah absolutely yeah it's easier to play um you know uh the next big fantasy game that feels like it's easier to play the next halo because you're habituated in a bunch of halo stuff Mm -hmm. and you're you'll like go down the pathway of all the weird narrative uh, uh like dead ends and like repetitions that happen because you're habituated into that form. Mm -hmm. Um, There's nothing inherently beautiful about Halo. (laughs) That's right. I'm on record. There's nothing inherently beautiful about John Halo himself. That could be a And the suit doesn't do that to him. (laughs) The suit is very chaste. Uh, Part four uh, is reconciling oil up before he gets in there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh you didn't say it chafes my bad no nope. my, my mistake my nope mistake. i said it was chased <laughs> yeah i got it um yeah. it says uh this next chapter is the one we talked about i'm your man anatomy of an interactive movie it's fascinating you can read that if you want to you don't have to 
Yeah, I mean, it is the final section. It's it's wonderful because of uh, she's like, this isn't particularly good in any way, but it is interesting. And having watched it on YouTube, she is correct. <laughs> uh, but someone's um, got to write about the new media like <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. You know, I think it's a good idea. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, part four is reconciling immersion and interactivity. And I actually have some uh interesting things to say here uh just about again i think this is another generational marker and it's something that i don't think ryan is like responsible for but i want to pull it up because it's a thing that i think about a lot this chapter begins with a story from um i just wrote down her last name langer i don't remember her first name i think we've read this suzanne langer yes susan langer um uh, i think we read it before i did it come up in hamlet on the hollow deck more than likely yeah yeah, so uh, this story is about, Langer is telling the story about when she was uh, a kid and she went to see a stage production of Peter Pan. Um, and uh, she was really into it, right? She's there in the theater, like, watching Peter Pan and then, oh my god, Tinkerbell drinks the poison. And so uh, we all know how this goes. Uh, Peter turns to the audience and says, you have to clap if you believe in fairies to bring Tinkerbell back to life. And Langer talks about how horrifyingly disappointed she was by this moment (laughs) Uh, because she was so enraptured, right? So immersed in watching the action. And this is, you know, the reason it shows up here is such a, it's such a great illustration of um, what Ryan is saying that immersion and interactivity can be opposed because the second that she, uh, that Langer had to interact with the, uh, with the theater, uh, the illusion was broken, right? And that mm-hmm. disappointed her. Um, so uh, just quoting from Ryan here, uh, by overtly recognizing the constructed imaginary nature of the textual world, metafiction blocks recentering and reclaims our native reality as an ontological center. So that meta move where Peter turns to the audience and says, clap if you believe in fairies, right? Uh, uh Ryan is saying that this is a move that is always going to kind of like deflate the illusion of immersion or whatever, right? The, 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 the illusion of the art form. And this is a very old argument about what meta moves in art do. That meta moves by their nature make uh, the artwork itself like you know, more distant, right? That, that, that it's going to, uh, sort of pull you out of it and make you aware of it as, uh, artifice is something that is constructed. Um, and like one of the kind of traditional pieces of advice, and I'm saying this because this is stuff that I was really interested in in undergrad. So I was like reading a lot of it and I went into grad school thinking a lot of these thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the t- traditional advice, right, is that you don't want to overdo it on meta moves because if you do too many meta moves, people will be like, we get the point. It's all fake. Leave like I'm done. Like I'm going to I'm going to go do something else. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, or they just don't engage anymore because it's all about tracing the meta moves. Right. Uh, and I ended up by accident having a prolonged life experience that taught me that this is not a universal truth of how people interact with meta moves and narrative. And there's a whole podcast about it called Homestuck Made This World that you can check right. out. Right. There's, um. a, there's this uh, little beautiful boy <laughs> who, uh, let's just say, makes a lot of meta moves. <laughs> uh, but that's sort of like, this is one of the things that is like really interesting to me because I do think it indexes kind of a generational shift where... Um, 
there is, I mean, maybe it doesn't, right? I can't go back in time and prove this, but well, like, and also not uh, just to clarify too, right? Yeah. Like not just generational. We don't mean just like the boomers got it wrong, right? Like that's not you know just to, in case people you know are are thinking that literally just there are different regimes of thinking through like what is literature, yes, and this is indicative, I think, and I think you're right. It's of a cohort with the kind of theoretical moves of the 60s, 70s, and 80s in particular. Right. Um, and and so it's not just like, oh, the boomers got it wrong, but there was a way of thinking about that that was dominant at the time. And this is hearkening back to that kind of theory, uh, you know, French philosophy moment and the response to the French philosophy moment. It's a very particular kind of um, American-style um, philosophical engagement with literature. Right. Right. Yeah. When I say generational, I'm not being like, ah, she's too old and doesn't understand. I mean, like, I think right. something happened. Like, partly Ryan can't talk about this because she is uh, at a she she's not coming up through the digital media ecology. Right. That there right. is something yeah. about uh, the way that the meta move now functions, I think, broadly in, in our media, in art and popular culture. That means mm -hmm. it doesn't have quite the estranging effect uh, mm -hmm. that she assumes that it always has. Yeah. And uh, that's partially why we're reading this book. It's, right. it's a historical document, right? In the same way that Hamlet on the holodeck is a historical document, cybertext, etc. Right. No, And that's just, I, that, that is something that I have thought about a lot that I went through school reading all this stuff that was saying like, here's what meta moves do, here's how they work, so on and so forth. And then I hit the real world and I'm like, oh, nope, that's not right. <laughs> yeah, people, lo people love a meta move. Right. They love when the character turns to the screen and says, please put one more dollar in. <laughs> they love when the uh, when the colonel's face falls off. <laughs> He's like, Snake, you're playing a video game. Yep. <laughs> a nerd's touching you, Snake. <laughs> you got a nerd in your truck yeah. with your kid and its egg. Uh, and just also actually on that same point of like historically situated aesthetic regimes at the end of this chapter, she also talks about modern theaters. And this is, again, uh, pinging off of Langer's story about Peter Pan. I'm just going to mm -hmm. quote here from 299. The strict division of the house between that's, uh, uh, you know, the space of the theater between the stage and the auditorium does not alienate the spectator from the action, but on the contrary, heightens the illusion of live presence and authenticity. Which I think is a fairly like uh, regular and, and normal way of reading how theaters work, right? The idea that it's uh, you go into the theater, you sit down in the chair, the lights go down and you look at uh, the stage where everyone is. And because the lights are on them, it's like, you know, you become in some ways disembodied, right? And that helps your immersion. Mm -hmm. And that's that's correct, I think. That's fine and good. Uh, but the, you know, me being an academic here being like, why don't you know about my time period? Uh, mm -hmm. the thing that I slide in here is, and that's not natural, right? Like the, mm -hmm. one of the other ways that, uh, Ryan tends to talk about, uh, immersion is if it's a natural process and it may be right. Maybe, maybe the thing we call immersion is happening constantly in all different times. But I think that the form that it takes is, uh, maybe pretty situated because that entire discussion of how a theater is laid out is uh historical right I, I i'm a shakespearean uh indoor theaters become a thing during shakespeare's time and there's a class politics attached to them uh moving the theater indoors so you can control the lighting uh and make the focus the performance rather than uh uh 
I don't know, whatever is going on in, in like the globe where you have the groundlings, right? The people who are only paying a penny who love to shout up at the stage and tell the characters that they're being stupid, right? And be like, why are you doing it this way? You should, oh, you shouldn't listen to him, right? Uh, uh, that there is a particular like social mode of engagement that is being inculcated uh, by the construction of the theater and by the move to the private indoor theaters. That means that immersion as it is being theorized here is therefore downstream of, you know, various other social processes. Right. So anyway, participatory and, and interactivity in electronic media is the last real chapter before the conclusion uh, what is going on here, Cameron? Is there anything we want to talk about? Um, no, probably not. Yeah. Um, unless you, uh, really need to like dig into it. Basically the maneuver here is cashing out some of the arguments that have been made already. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, kind of previewing maybe where video games could go. This is one of the places where video games show up the most. Oh, uh, yes. Um, um, just across the board. Um, but no, I can't think of anything that like really stuck out to me here. Other, yeah. There, there's a long section about like that feels a lot like Hamlet on the holodeck is where as well where it's like what is the minimum viable product for thinking about like how computational media could help us out here. Mm -hmm. You know, and what I mean by that is like, can a chat bot be good enough to make a world feel like a world? <laughs> you know, and when yeah. we when we read Murray, you know, we were like, you know, like three years ago or whatever. We were both like, yeah, that didn't really work out. You know, yeah. like it didn't go anywhere. And then like the last year happened, and uh, it still seems like it's mostly garbage. Like uh -huh. you know, I keep I keep seeing these like demos that people are so astonished by about how good they are in terms of like making NPCs or whatever using uh, LLMs mm -hmm. and. They're fine, but I also don't think they're any better than like paying a random human being to like turn it out. Obviously, it's better for on the in terms of the uh, of the uh, bottom line to like have a computer do it mm -hmm. um, because that's a service and you can pay for it. And you can use lots of different things. It's also quick and iterable. Like I understand there's like all these economic reasons why you would like suppress uh, human thriving um, in order to like find uh, a dollar. Like uh -huh. I get all that. But like uh, even the the best ones, they look like things that would take a lot of human labor to like polish and to create really specific um, data sets to, for the LLM to pull from to train on. So I'm still skeptical of it going. I know that there's going to be 15 people who come after this to be like, well, have you seen this one? And my answer is yes, I've seen that one. And they still look bad to me. Mm -hmm. um, Where's that going to be in two years? Maybe maybe I'll be wrong. Um, I'll accept being wrong in the in the fullness of human time. But she talks about that, and that's interesting, probably. And if you were writing about LLMs and their use in computer or in video game production, you should probably come back to this chapter and check it a lot because she does a lot of cool comparison with other art forms and thinking about other art forms. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, she, yeah. She gets her prediction for kind of like what the narrative of the future is going to be like. Um, mm -hmm. that is, and I'm just going to quote, she, she says it's going to be more like Alice in Wonderland than the works of Aristotle. That's not out of nowhere, right? These are kind of some example, like she goes back to, uh, Alice and Aristotle kind of bit yeah. by bit throughout the book. Um, mm -hmm. the distinction being, is it, uh, you know, in the Aristotelian sense, like everything is extremely regimented and unified and it moves bit by bit by bit to like the, the cathartic end or something like Alice in Wonderland, which is, 
uh, weird and digressive, but also episodic, that there's not like a big epic plot that goes on overhead. It's kind of like a collection of vignettes. And so she says um, that it is probably going to be more like Alice in Wonderland than Aristotle. Quote, the macro level will be dominated by an epic of exploration, but on the micro level, the fictional world will also include those elements emphasized by the Oz Project. Uh, aside, this is like an experimental theater thing that she talked about a little bit. That's the Oz Project. Mm -hmm. But its qualities are dramatic or humorous confrontations, such as the Queen of Hearts episode, and live dialogue with memorable characters, the Humpty Dumpty conversation. This is also video games, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's a plot going on somewhere. Sure. And, like, I, I guess there's, like, a universe or a world that I gotta save. But in the meantime, I'm running through the woods looking for crafting materials, and I found a really funny NPC. That's good. Yeah, we like we like to talk to her. <laughs> the next chapter is uh, about the Diamond Age, Neil Stevenson's book. It is straight up just talking about the Diamond Age for 15 pages. Yep, it's like a an extremely thorough interpretation and analysis of the Diamond Age. Yeah, I guess if you like the Diamond Age, you should read it. Mm-hmm. Um, genre. Yeah. Oh, we should probably. Yeah, we should do some Stevenson. On yeah. That. I actually had that thought while reading this Take whole thing. Take 15 you know? months to read one book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we got to conclusion. Yep. Literature in the media landscape. And it's really just cashing out a lot of the stuff that we talked about before. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's just a good old-fashioned conclusion, you know. It's no like more, no less. All that stuff. That I mean, one other thing that I thought was interesting, again, maybe like a it shows like the historical document nature is she holds up the 19th century novels and like the novelists as, uh, you know, the the she says, and this is like an explicit claim that she makes that they are they are still relevant today. Right. They, they showed how uh, immersive literature can be and how involved people want to be in literary worlds. Um and I think for 2001, probably she's correct. But also what, what I think is interesting is that uh, she is at a moment of cultural pivot toward the immersion of literary worlds becoming like the Tolkien franchise model. Right. Like that's kind of what yeah. has happened, I think, is that the 19th century novel has been superseded by the franchise logic. I wouldn't even say that. I mean, I, I buy that claim. I think it has been superseded by YA literature. Yeah. As like a as a market segment, right? right? And okay, like, a, yeah. and I'm not mournful of that. Like, I, I that has no moral weight to me one way or the other, right? Like, we can't be holding on to the 19th, 19th century for eternity, even though I like lots of those books. But I do think that, like, in education, the reason we kept reading the 19th century novel and the reason we kind of keep doing it today is not because they're inherently beautiful, even though I like lots of 19th century novels. It's because of cultural hegemony, right? Uh -huh. It's because there are people with power who want to keep doing that, and they are college professors. They don't have a huge amount of power, but they get to determine what they teach, and there's plenty of Victorianists and uh, world literature people who hold on to that era and think it's powerful and important, and eventually they won't exist anymore, and there'll be other people who have that power and make different decisions. This was the canon wars, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways, too. Yeah. But the other thing is, like, if she's talking about in culture... You know, I read pr pr plenty of like 19th century, early 20th century stuff, Poe and um, Jane Austen and uh, Wuthering Heights. You know, these are things I read both in school and outside of school, uh, Brothers Karamazov, all that stuff. YA didn't exist. Like there wasn't yeah. like literature because lots of those are about young people. You know what I mean? Like they're about people trying to figure their shit out. 
You know what I mean? In a general sense. Now we have like a multi-billion dollar industry that just churns out book after book that's about people figuring their shit out. Mm -hmm. You know, if there was a cultural power to those that 19th century novel it's like most of them were buildings romans right. right they they were about how does a human being become like a an adult right you yeah <laughs> that's what that was the deal it's not that that to me it's not that they're inherently more immersive or like that the storytelling mechanisms are there although i will say this overwhelmingly the most popular YA literature is written like a 19th century novel right it has the same kinds of like first person narratives and then um free and direct discourse, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, they're not overwhelmingly like, they're not actually Tolkien-esque, right? Like they're not world building. Mm -hmm. So that, that, maybe that is interesting that the, maybe she's right. The literary mm -hmm. form mm -hmm. might still dominate weirdly enough, just yeah. not the content. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, yeah. That's worth thinking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that, it. That's, that's the end. That's it. We read this book. Uh, I don't know if I would recommend trying to read it cover to cover. And if you did, I would recommend you reading the second edition. Um, it's about 100 pages shorter, it looks like. And it's missing a lot of the things that uh, that are good examples. But if you don't care about the Diamond Age, it doesn't really matter if you read that. Or if you don't care about Calvino, it doesn't really matter if you read that chapter. So um, I, I would probably recommend doing that. So uh, what are we doing next month then? The summer? Well, actually, we didn't. Did we even talk about agency? We didn't at all, right? Interactivity, whatever. Who cares? Um, the uh, <laughs> the uh, the next. I think here's what here's what I want to do. Okay. You know, I've already burned you once. So what could I do? Burn you twice? Mm hmm. This is what the book I want to read. Okay. Okay. It's Marsha Kinder's book, "Playing with Power in Movie, Television, and Video Games." From Muppet Babies to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> it's from 1991. It's uh, it's a book on, like, kind of kids stuff. But uh, here are the chapter titles. You ready? Uh-huh. Chapter one, foreplay and other preliminaries. Marcia Kinder, you scamp. Oh. Chapter two, Saturday morning television. Endless consumption and transmedia intertextuality in Muppets. <laughs> Chapter three, the Nintendo Entertainment System, Game Boys, Super Brothers, and Wizards. Uh -huh. Chapter four, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the super system in the video game movie genre. Chapter five, post-play in global networks and afterward. It's I, fairly short, yeah. which I know I've punished you in the previous one, Michael, by making you read a nearly 400-page book. Yeah. It's pretty short, and I think it would be a fun, like, again, historical document. Because uh -huh. this book I got because of something maybe that was cited in a previous book that we read. Yeah, and I, it I, was cited, and I, I think. I, I flipped through it, and I was like, no one talks about this. So we should talk about this. How do I get it? And we're going to talk about the Muppet Babies. How do I get it? Yeah, that's well, why I remembered so it, it, because the Muppet Babies, because I'm cursed to always remember the Muppet Babies. So I got a, uh, I bought just a hardcover version for like five bucks. Uh -huh. on the uh on the old internet but here's the deal it's open access it is you can just read it yeah you can just read it well hot damn it's on the uc press ebooks collection 1982 to 2004 oh that's great okay. yeah so you can just read this bad boy if you want to cool so yeah man so talk I, about a historical document this is a 90s web design it, yeah, it is. You, you uh, unfortunately, everyone will have to to struggle through that part. But yeah, I think it'll be fun. 
it's like 170 pages. Okay. And we get to talk about Nintendo. I just think it would be a cool thing to talk about. This kind of like intertextuality, early emergence of video game, console dominance, and like toys and TV. Mm-hmm. It'll be fun. Yep. So that's my bid. Is that acceptable to you? Yeah, works for me. I think it makes right. a good compliment to various other things we've read thus far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to see if I could find like a good quotation here. There is a, I'm just, you know how when I look at a table, my eyes glaze over? Mm-hmm. Eyes aren't glazing over on this one. It's a Saturday morning t- uh, network programming table. For fall season 1989, West Coast schedule. Oh, kick ass. 7 a.m. CBS is playing Dink the Dinosaur. <laughs> NBC's playing Alf Tales. ABC's playing Scooby Doo. <laughs> but later on, here's the deal 9, 9 a.m. California Raisins versus Smurfs versus the real Ghostbusters. I can't believe they made them all fight. They had to fight. That was that was Saturday morning TV. Everyone had to fight. <laughs> There was a Karate Kid cartoon. Anyway, Weird. we're going to learn all kinds of stuff. So that's going to be the next book. It is called Playing with Power in Movies, Television, and Video Games. Uh, and we'll post on Twitter and Blue Sky. I think we'll probably have a Blue Sky account by the time this starts. Mm-hmm. And then also or by the time that next episode is out. And uh, then uh, we'll post it on the Discord as well. So um, uh, you can also just Google it. Mm-hmm. and you'll, It's pretty easy to find. All right. All right. Well, that's the end of this episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening. You go to patreon.com slash range touch to support the show at $3 a month. You can get access to our notes. Currently, that's mostly Michael's notes because I've had to read the last couple of books like truly in between other things I've been doing. But uh, uh, I will I will return with notes soon. Um, and then, you know, I've thought about. Because we're reading this Marsha Kinder book, I was thinking, Michael, what if we did the winter of children? <laughs> Just floating it. We're not committed necessarily, yeah. but I think it might be fun to do the winter of yeah. children. I think we'd have to like do some real thinking to come up with enough children-related books that are going to even fit on Game Study Study Buddies. But sure. no, there are all kinds of children-related yeah. books. They're just part of the, they're the part of Game Studies everyone forgot about, mm-hmm. like this Marsha Kinder book that no one talks about, right? Or maybe people do talk about, but is uh, generally not in the most cited books we've engaged with. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there's a whole chapter on the Green Ranger. Ooh, awesome book. I liked him. Me too. He was strong. He was evil, and then he became good. That's right. A two-parter, right? Uh-huh, On that two-part uh-huh. episode? That's good. All right. Well, uh, if you're a, a, a Gen Z, you know, like uh, like Allison... On the episode we did of Just King Things, the bonus episode that you can access on patreon.com slash range touch, where she says, uh, look, I don't understand this. I'm Gen Z. Mm-hmm. You know, Gen Z. And I say, that's not an excuse. You should have to know... We used to have to choose between Alf Tales and Dink the Dinosaur. <laughs> we couldn't just stream it. We didn't have two TVs. <laughs> All right. We'll be back in a month with uh, the next episode on Playing with Power in Movies, Television, and Video Games by Marsha Kinder. The social is predicated on its exclusions.
a good clap. It sounded like you did like a little like a, like a little hand fart. Yeah. I can't believe I was able to do that. Uh, Discord, of course, it edited now. it out. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll leave. It. I'll put it. I'll put this after the. Uh, I'll put this after the thing is done. You know. Good. Like a little bonus. <laughs> Let me see if I can get right in the microphone. I can't do it upside down. That's weird. <laughs> well, just know I was doing some some audacious hand farts. I'm sure. Mm-hmm.